You're listening to On the Ear, an audiology podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I'm your host, Dr. Dakota Sharp, AUDCCCA, audiologist, clinical professor, and lifelong learner. While I primarily work with pediatric cochlear implants and hearing aids, I am absolutely intrigued by the many areas of audiology and communication in general. This podcast aims to explore the science of hearing, balance, and communication with a variety of experts in hopes of equipping you to better serve your patients, colleagues, and students. So let's go. We are live and on the ear, brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. In the past three decades, universal newborn hearing screening programs have drastically increased the number of infants diagnosed with hearing loss within the first year of life. Before these programs were established, parental concern was often the driving factor for a parent to pursue hearing testing. Now the news often comes before any language delays would occur, catching parents by surprise and causing a vast variety of reactions from parents and families. The problem is that screening and diagnostic capabilities of audiologists seem to have surpassed our counseling abilities. That's why our guest today is going to help us better understand how to bridge those gaps and help families through this journey. Dr. Lelok Saperstein is an audiologist and parent coach helping families navigate life and parenting at the intersection of hearing loss, special needs, and other chronic health challenges. She is the host of the All About Audiology podcast. You have to go check out her podcast. So great, which has been downloaded more than 25,000 times. I'm sure by the time we're recording this, she's vastly surpassed that. Dr. Saperstein is on a mission to help parents connect with and advocate for their children. From her speaking engagements to her clinical work, she has empowered thousands of people with information and support in their time of need. Her FIG method put tools to process, grieve, and understand and advocate in the hands of families. We are so fortunate to have Dr. Saperstein joining us today. Hey, Lilac, how are you doing? Thank you so much, Dakota. I'm so excited to be here. I know we've got, you know, some podcasting minds working together here. I think you're my first ever guest who also comes from a podcast. It is a fun world. You know, we just get to have ideas and share them. It's amazing from our living room or wherever, you know? <laughs> exactly. And it's like, it's a pretty small world. I have a feeling we're on the cusp of like, I feel like every day I'm seeing more like programs and things coming out because people are realizing this is kind of one of the best ways to reach people and share information because we've got a lot of time on our hands. Uh, a lot of people are spending time at home and listening to podcasts and stuff. It's a good time to like have some media that's, you know, educational and personal. Totally. And there's the the multitasking element where you could like be doing dishes or walking while you listen. <laughs> exactly. That's what I love most about it. Going on a walk, being in the car. Mm-hmm. Okay. So before we kind of get into like better ways of doing things, could we talk a little bit about kind of how things are currently approached? So I think personally, as someone who works, you know, primarily with pediatrics, Delivering the news of a diagnosis of hearing loss is maybe one of the most challenging, most daunting tasks of a lot of pediatric audiologists, like doing the diagnostic, doing the ABR or the hearing test, those kind of become skills that, you know, you're just doing them all the time. It's not really that challenging, but having those conversations it's really hard. And I feel like most programs are not explicitly giving instruction. You might have some a counseling course or counseling, but it's really broad. It's talking people through their diagnosis of hearing loss as adults and things like that. But I have a feeling um, you can speak to a little bit like when you're having that conversation with a parent, it's different from talking to an adult with hearing loss who may be new over many years. It's It's different. Could you speak to kind of like where we've been so far and kind of how that works? Absolutely. So what I've seen is that the, the, the pressure 
and how much we put on that one conversation is part of the problem. Like it doesn't need to only be here. This is the moment that the audiologist is putting this out there and they need all the answers right this minute. And they need to feel all their emotions in this session. Like that is not happening. So just knowing, first of all, opening up that saying, we're going to start to give you some information about the testing we did today or the last few sessions, and these are the results. And then you're going to come again another time, and we're going to talk more about what we need to do next. And, you know, kind of starting off the conversation with this is the beginning. This is step one. And there are many, many steps ahead. And I think that the audiology side of things the, the clinicians, the practitioners feel what you're saying, which is like, okay, uh, this is the diagnosis. Here's what, what has to be done. Here's the timeline. He, they need to talk to this person, that person, da, da, da. and maybe it's too much too fast because we only have that limited amount of time. So yeah, I think that's part of the biggest um, pressure and concern that we have on the audiology side. And then on the parent side, oh my gosh, being, I mean, anyone who's a parent knows that that first first day, first week, first month, like being a new parent is a whole, wow, huge experience. Yeah. You're not sleeping. You're caring for this newborn. Maybe, you know, and when it's not a first baby, you have other kids to take care of. And when it is a first baby, it's like, wow, your whole world just changed and turned upside down. And people have different levels of support. And like, they're doing that thing called being parents. And now we're saying, wait, wait, come over here and do this thing called lead and manage your child's audiological care or any diagnosis that they're having. Sure. So we have to first take a, a really big, deep breath together <laughs> collectively. So the, I, yeah. the first step is slow down. Yes. <laughs> yes. I think, I think that's great advice as a starting point because, oh my goodness, the way that you broke that down is so true. And a lot of times we... We know the 136 rule, right? We know time is of the essence when it comes to developing language, and so we need to make decisions. But the difference between, you know, a few days or a week is not enough to have that kind of impact on their language development. You know what I mean? It's not like every decision needs to be made on the first day. All of the information needs to be conveyed on the first day. That's really not true. And I do feel I, I think you're right that there's a lot of pressure there to deliver the information make it clear, make sure they understand, and then make sure they start making some decisions on, you know, communication options and things like that. That's a really great point. Yeah. And not only that, when you do do that in that first session and, and like bombard them, you actually run the risk of having people lost a follow-up and people being so overwhelmed that they don't know what to do with themselves <laughs> or later on saying, well, I was just pressured into doing A, B, and C, which maybe we didn't have enough information on. So there's a risk to doing sure. it too fast. And, and sure. the other thing that I am so, so passionate about, which really is my, my mission, is that there is space to delegate or outsource or like spread out who's doing this part of the journey, where the clinical audiologist has a very important clinical job and the counseling part doesn't necessarily have to also be the same exact person. It could be someone on their team in the clinic. It could be a dedicated social worker or someone, mental health professional who's on the team, or it could even be outside of the actual healthcare, which is something that I've brought in what I do um, as an external and audiologist, but more on the parenting coach and walking you through what this journey looks like. And I think we need that. You know, I think there's room for audiologists to specialize in being not clinical necessarily, 
but having all the background skills to be more of a counseling audiologist, which is what I do now. <laughs> yeah. That's that's awesome. I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited to talk more about that kind of a model. Before we get to that, we kind of talked about how audiologists currently deliver the news of a diagnosis. I'm not sure if you have anything else you want to add oh, yes. to like kind of the current understanding, but also I think you have some good insights into how families are processing that diagnosis now that you have a new perspective and you can see it a little bit more long term. Um, in that traditional model. I mean, I guess maybe we would call it a medical model where it's you get your diagnosis and here's your treatment and bye, you know, mm -hmm. um, in that model, how are audiologists delivering the news traditionally? I know we said rushed. Is there anything else there? And then how are families typically processing it when it's delivered in that way? Great question. Okay. So when a child is diagnosed with a, a cardiac issue or a GI thing or, you know, anything that's really physically, physiologically a medical you could use the word complication, difference, you know, whatever's going on, then depending on the severity of that, there is a very clear diagnosis treatment, like one-to-one, -one, let's go, you know, either there's a surgery or there's a medicine or there, like, and so there's that, that's the story, you know, it's a medical story, but with audiology, with hearing loss or, or, you know, children who are identified as hard of hearing or deaf, even changing the language of that is saying, we have now found this about your child it's not necessarily something wrong with them. Like right away, starting with changing some of that language and knowing that, yes, hearing loss is a term and it is true that they're, you know, hearing can be lost. But when a child is diagnosed right from birth, maybe that's how they are. You know, so even starting about that kind of thing and saying your child was identified rather than diagnosed changes things. And also bring, being much more open to um, the fact that somebody's hearing status also affects their communication, their socialization, their identity in a lot of different ways, rather than, you know, if someone has a, a heart condition and then they have a surgery, that's not necessarily kind of their part of their core identity and their communication method. And it's going to affect where they can go to school. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Yeah. So we know that's that there's a great point. Just intersection. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Like the the diagnosis, like the diagnosis perspective of things, the stigma that comes with that, and just rethinking that. I know that's that's a really big conversation right now, um, and I think that's a good point. Is is when you can have an identity and a community based in something, and maybe it's not, maybe it's not a condition, it's not a diagnosis. You know, I mean, it is, but like it's not in that way where we have to treat it so medically and so sterile. You know, and to have a deaf mentor involved, meet a deaf adult, or even hear the word deaf community. Like so many people don't even know about that or are exposed to that. They're only in the medical, medical uh, track. <laughs> They're only on the medical track. They're gonna go, you know, okay, so are you a candidate for cochlear implant? And then boom, 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 auditory verbal. And like, that's an amazing path when that's right, when you've chosen it, when you know the other options. So I think there's a lot of room there for shared decision-making when you know what the decisions are, the options. Sure. How do you feel like when parents are given the news right now, when it's in that kind of like matter-of-fact way, how do you feel like they're currently processing or what, what's the typical reaction? So I think it depends a lot on where the parents come from and what they know. And if they have other hard-of-hearing people in their family, if they've ever been exposed to deafness, and that's unusual you know, just because of the stats. So most people, this is the first deaf person they're ever meeting is their own child. And they don't know what that is. So 
when we approach those parents, we have to say, you know, welcome to Holland, you know, that poem. Yeah. That's, <laughs> this is going to be different. You didn't expect this. Nobody, you know, you've never experienced this. You don't know anybody who's gone through this, but actually there's a whole new world out there. It's different than what you expected. Now let's, you know, let's see where we are now. And to make room for the grief and to make room for the shock and to understand their tears, you know, there's no judgment. I, I, I one time uh, posted a thing called, is it ableist to grieve your child's diagnosis? You know, no, <laughs> yeah, like different yeah. people come from different places. Once you know everything and once you're like later on in your journey and then, you know, you discriminate against deaf people and not provide the services they need. Okay, that's ableist, you know, actively. Yeah. But to not come and shame new parents who like this brick just fell from the sky and they don't know what to do with it. That's yeah. okay. Make room for that. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good point. I think another big problem too with how many audiologists are trained is that in that class that kind of or class, maybe it's not even a whole class dedicated to counseling. Maybe it's just like a portion of your pediatrics course or something. I think we're often taught that, you know, families who typically come from a hearing background, if the diagnosis is unexpected, you can expect them to go through the grief process. And I think it's usually based on like a grief, like a, a grief model based on death right? Where you have, there's, I think it's like Kubler-Ross, like there's different stages, people put them in different orders, and they can go out of order, the denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, right? So we're taught that process. And we're like, you can expect parents to go through this, and they can cycle through it, and they might go through the steps differently. But I, I, I think like a year ago, I was doing a reading on this. And it was like, a, a diagnosis of hearing loss is not necessarily, it's, it's actually not like a not like grieving death really at all. It's more chronic, right? It's like they go through waves of things. It could come up later, like many years from now that they realize, oh, that, you know, they're missing this or, you know, like the situation can change over time. And so to treat it as this one concrete, okay, you're going to go through your grief and then we're going to be beyond that now. Okay. And now we're happy and now we're moving on with our life. It's like, no, that's actually not really a good approach for this. It's more like when you were mentioning earlier, like more like something that's chronic, that's going to be with them and they can be grieving for years. You know, it's, it's going to be so different per family. Yeah. It's more, I, I like to think of it more like a spiral where you kind of go around it and then you come back to those points again from another perspective. Like when- Oh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. When your kid is coming to now be put into kindergarten and you have to make a decision about educational placement, what kind of school, what kind of track, educational track. So you, you know, you're back at it again. And then when they get to middle school, there's like all the social stuff and you're there again. Yeah. <laughs> and then when they're, when they're getting to, you know, like- testing accommodations and IEPs. This is a whole new journey. So like you're going to be with them for all those different stages. It's not just like a, I don't know, a hit and run, you know, here's your diagnosis. See yeah. Ya. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love that. The spiral. That's a really great way to put it. That's a really great way to put it. Um, so well, actually kind of let's jump to that then. So let's talk about, so we've kind of talked about like current model versus a newer model. I think we'll get to that in a little bit, but like what are the current options in your experience that many audiologists are giving families? Um, I guess like right after they deliver the news of a diagnosis and we're, if we're using that model of, all right, we've got to get all of this information out as fast as we can in that setup. Um, how do you feel about how their support options, communication options, how do you feel about how that's being delivered and communicated to families? Okay. So let's, let's uh, take the example of a child who, for, for them, it's appropriate to fit a hearing aid. 
amplification is is their route. Let's like stick with that example for a second. If that, if we say to those parents, here's the child's audiogram, here's the results, and next sentence is, and they need a hearing aid, and we're doing an ear mold impression right this minute <laughs> or at this appointment, then then it's like, wow, that is like a train. It's it's just moving so quickly through them. What if the entire conversation is only about, here's what this hearing loss is. Let's take a look at a speech banana. Let's do a simulation of what moderate hearing loss sounds like. You know, let's play that Flintstones video. <laughs> like to, to just first say like, here is an infant, a baby, even three months, even six months, even 18 months, whatever. This, this, these parents haven't seen the implication. So sometimes they might not even believe you or, or say like, what do you mean my baby cries when, they, when they're when they need a diaper and they eat and like, what else does a baby do? You know, we, we connect with them from eye contact. We sing to them. Like, especially when we're talking about that first, first weeks, months, like early, early infants, it's like, I just got this baby. What are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah. There's nothing visual there. And, and like you put stickers on their head, you look that crazy waves on a computer and now you're telling me they need a hearing aid. Like, who are you? Where's this coming from? (laughs) I think we have to first say, here's how we did the test. Here's what the test means. All those squiggly lines, this is what they mean. It's as if we were asking them to raise their hand, but they did it automatically. Like, you know, break it down, talk to people like they're people. And, and I think that this is exactly one of my, my main values is that there is expertise on both sides of this table. You studied to be an audiologist or whoever you are in your expertise model. And you have a lot, a lot, a lot of information and training and and yes. And the other side, you have a parent who is the expert parent for this child. They know their baby. And if they don't know them yet, they will. Like they're the ones who have this child for 24 hours a day, every single day. So there's a meeting of equals here. There's a, a partnership. You know, we have to see the expertise on both sides. You're the expert in your child. You're the expert in audiology. Let's work together and not talking down or like, you know, condescending. And, and I don't even think people, any of us are doing that on purpose, but some of the training is like, well, I know. And then, well, you didn't explain it. So how, how do I know? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a great point. That's that's such an easy place to cut corners if you're worried about time or if you're feeling that pressure to get everything done as soon as possible is that you don't take the time to actually break things down, which I think at the end of the day, like, I mean, there can be such a thing as too much information, right? But in most situations, the parent would rather know as much as possible. They want to understand what happened. And so I think that's a great point is, really truncating things down and going slowly through the material that's really going to be the foundation for them to understand much more complex things later when especially when we start talking about you know communication options and stuff for them if we're trying to explain well if your goal is spoken language they're not going to really be able, be able to achieve that but you didn't take the time to break down their hearing loss the different frequencies that are affected how severe it is they're not going to have that foundation to then understand those more complex conversations later precisely especially again with that mild moderate hearing loss where or you know or, or moderate i feel i feel there's a lot i've had a lot of experience with this moderate specifically where where the child hears where they respond to sound mm, where this yeah. is not a child who's deaf they so there's a lot of resistance like but they do respond and they do and and especially extended family uh sometimes you know you see that later on in the in the process where the parents are on board but then 
there's a grandma or a sister-in-law or whoever is in the family that's like, why do they need that? And they do they do too here. <laughs> and it's they like, can be I some cannot. of the biggest roadblocks. I, I'm with you. I've, I've had some really tricky grandmas in my time who just do not buy the story. Everybody else is in, but grandma is just very much <laughs> refusing to go along with us. Precisely. So, so doing <laughs> knowing what you need in that, what the parent needs in order to then help them with their relationship with grandma. Like, I don't know that that's the clinical audiologist's job who sees 15 patients in four hours, you know? Like, mm-hmm. like there's room for the support, for someone to get support for that outside of the clinic. And I want audiologists to know also that you, you can, you know, refer for that or say to them, I'd like you to speak to so-and-so on the team, or have you heard of this, this service or like recommend counseling, you know, that's something yeah. that's in your scope, but it's almost like, Oh, I don't know. It's not my place. It is. I think it's important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think yeah. one of the biggest strategies is just knowing where to send people to to get that information, knowing where your limitations are, mm-hmm. right? I think that's a really good point. So back to this this kid, you know, then you come and say, here's what a hearing aid does. And then with the hearing aid, they'll be able to hear these soft sounds that we were just missing. Now you have a parent who's a partner with you, who's going to get it why they want to come in every three months for new molds and is going to understand to, you know, waking hours as much as possible to have those hearing aids in and they're going to like be with you and you're, you've now made a partnership for the benefit of the child instead of being like still kind of, I don't know, they told me to do this. I don't really know. Every time I put them in, the kid cries, like, should we really do this? That's one thing. And then I just want to put right here also very importantly that the people, I think one of the things people experience and part of their grief is that they're alone that they're the first person this has ever happened to. They don't know any other baby in their whole community. No one in their, you know, in their uh, church or synagogue or temple or community that they know has hearing loss, only old people, you know, or nobody in their neighborhood or like they're, they're the only ones. And of course there's other people. They're just a little, you know, second, third degree to you. So starting to give people information about hands and voices organization, chapters in your area or whatever other organizations are there to start meeting other parents and seeing other kids and seeing there is this whole, I mean, or coming on Instagram, like literally telling them, look, search search this hashtag, search this, you'll see (laughs) there's a community out there and you're not alone. Facebook groups, you know, IRL or, or online, let's go, you know? Yeah. That's such a good point. They're, they are all out there. And now that it's becoming easier and easier to connect with people, I think that that's, that's hopefully going to improve. That's that's part of our protocol now. If we have a child diagnosed with hearing loss, is we immediately start connecting them with all of these different family organizations in the area that have children who have a variety of communication modalities and degrees of hearing loss and, you know, like ages and backgrounds and all that stuff. And I've, I've found that the families who take the time to invest in those kinds of resources are always, always better adjusted. They're, you know, more quick, they're better about maintaining their appointments. And, you know, everybody just seems happier and more successful because they have people to connect with. I'm such a big fan. And, and I love those organizations so much, especially Hands and Voices. I've worked with them and a few, with a few of their chapters. And, you know, I come in and do a workshop and the entire hour and a half is to talk about, let's learn about advocacy training, or let's talk about how to, handle your child when they're getting to the stage that they want it or don't want it, you know, because that's different than an infant Mm -hmm. and you decide for them. So I do these workshops and I feel like 
everyone kind of takes like that, ah, that sigh. Someone knows what I'm talking about. They know what I'm getting at. And this audiologist, like she didn't talk to me about decibel levels at all the whole hour, but I feel more <laughs> equipped to go into my life and like be a parent to yeah. this kid. That's what, that's yeah. what fires me up. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, what do you feel like? So I think we talked a little bit about like community organizations, connecting them with other families. What other support options, I guess like supports, options for families, what other things do you feel like kind of get left out during, I mean, maybe not even during that initial, we've talked about already, like we don't have to put it all in in this first appointment, right? Like we can break it down a little bit more, but which which supports out there do you feel like are often missed? I think that the idea that there's one option and you need to get on board is is something that I've heard from a lot of parents. Like no matter if they say, oh, and they told us we have to get hearing aids or they told us we have to meet with the ENT Mm -hmm. and our next step is cochlear implant candidacy or, you know, they told us an option like your next step is and they tried to then convince us why that was important. And Mm -hmm. even if that's true, even clinically, that is the right next step. There's a very important way to do that and present it so that the parents see it for themselves and want to do that next thing, or that they, that you give them two or three things and say, here's your options. Cause sometimes saying to them, these are the results we got today, but we actually want to repeat this and make sure that it, it, uh, you know, we got a duplication replication. And if you would like, it's totally in your rights to go and do that at another center or another hospital or with another team. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know how many audiologists employed at a hospital like really feel comfortable saying that, but that's a patient's right. And it's your responsibility for them to know their rights. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you want to say that next to your boss, <laughs> <laughs> but at a certain point, like you have a responsibility to this family. I, I'm just remembering very specific case that touched my heart. This was about a year and a half ago. There, there was a family who told me that the, the woman who did the ABR in the hospital where they did it was very rough. She was like scrubbing the baby's skin and they were so scared because oh like, you know, new baby and new parents and their skin yeah. is so soft. Like, and the mom was telling me the story. She was crying. She said they were scrubbing his skin and the lady was rough. And she's like, why isn't she sleeping? I told you to sleep. Like very impatient. Oh my gosh. And, and then after that, the baby didn't get a full response. You know, they did need to come back because they woke up didn't get the full bone conduction everything so when they told them you have to come back she was devastated like i have to go back to this lady again and she's going to do this whole thing again and i told her you know you can go to another hospital there's other people who do abrs in your country like i I mean hopefully people have access to that that's not true for everybody Uh, yeah but you know in most major cities uh, you have an option or at least even to switch the the actual the person, person yeah the clinician yeah there's more than one person on, yeah. on a team oh my goodness so and and like well, that woman you know i'm not judging her either as an audiologist she scrubbed the skin probably fine you know here's a sensitive mom i'm not saying she did it wrong <laughs> yeah is- but just without without anyone ever telling them otherwise they and i think that comes that comes with a lot of that emotional journey for them too is if they feel like they don't have any control like there's something they feel like something's wrong with their baby and they don't know if they, if it's because of something they did or you know what however they're processing through that grief then you give them then you put them in a situation where they're just facing like 
doctor after doctor after center. And then like, they don't realize that they can have some control over this process. You know, they can have some control over where they go and how they're scheduling and what options that they want to pursue with their child. Cause ultimately it is completely up to them. But yeah, I, I have also seen that before where clinicians just feel like this is how it's going to be. Here's the list and we're going to do these things. Okay. Bye-bye. You know, they, they don't really give the fam the family any input there. And I actually, that leads me into a question I wanted to ask. Um, in terms of kind of making these decisions more like a shared decision-making model between the families and the clinician, um, how do you feel like from the beginning, audiologists can be better about making it a more shared decision-making process? Wow. Uh, even just wanting that is already going to come across in everything you do and say. Like if you, if you really, it's almost like having a mindset shift when as the audiologist, you say, okay, now how am I going to now bring this family on this journey together? I'm accompanying them. I'm with them. Let's, you know, metaphorically hold hands. <laughs> yeah. Because instead of follow me, this is let's go. I'm the leader. Mm -hmm. It's almost switching in your mind that you have to help this parent now become the leader. And that and that's like where the the actual power comes because that kid needs a parent, right? Kids need parents that are going to advocate for them and fight for them and come to appointments and, you know, stick to the schedule of whatever they choose. And the more on board they are with that, the better outcomes the kid will have, no matter what they're going to, you know, whichever decision they go. So having a little bit more humility, honestly, <laughs> just coming from a place where we are going to share this decision and, and I'm going to do my best as the professional to educate you on what's out there. And yes, I studied for eight years and I only have half an hour uh, right now, but you can <laughs> do your best to simplify and to explain and to demonstrate, like lose all the jargon, throw it all out the window, no fancy words, even audiograms, like they're, they tell us a lot, but they don't tell regular people a lot, lay people who look at all of this graphs, like one graph or another, what does this mean? So saying to somebody, when a child with this level of hearing loss is going to be in a classroom, uh, they're going to not understand the teacher at all, unless the teacher is speaking directly at them. You know, and if you have a three-year-old that is having behavioral issues and it's really difficult and you say, well, this kid doesn't hear when you call them, the first eight times. <laughs> so like you're getting upset that they didn't hear you, but like bringing it into actual terms of what this looks like, what are the implications? Yeah. How does this kid behave? Uh, I think specifically the mild hearing losses and the unilateral hearing losses. This is mm -hmm. also a big point because parents are like, nah, they hear, nah, they're developing. Like, you know, why should I believe you all the things you're saying? So it's important to come and say to them, here are the situations where I'm concerned that this child doesn't have access or, you know, we want to watch this very carefully because the other ear, you know, explaining what your thought process in your mind is as a clinician, putting it out there. And yeah, yeah that's, yeah. that's such a good point. Giving everything context, generalizing. You are so right. I mean, I can't think of the amount of times, like even myself where I get through explaining the audiogram, so much detail. So like, 
db levels and like everything and this is how loud this thing would be and all that and then at the end it's like okay but like what percent of hearing do i have left yeah yeah, yeah. okay so that was a waste of time right like if you had just started with context and explaining what that looks like in the real world it sticks so much better and it really helps them to explain it to others too who are who they don't it's like a game of telephone right where like you explained their degree of hearing loss and then by the time it gets to like the third family member they're like okay so they can't yeah. like they have uh severely severely mild here what what is it again you know what i mean like if <laughs> yeah. you, whereas if you just said like oh they're gonna have trouble in these situations they can't hear this when this is going on or you know i think that's a really great point right let's just move all that jargon like even those regular words that are english words severe mild they don't mean what they mean to you as an audiologist yeah. and a person that's exactly right i just had the most fascinating conversation actually last week with a mom who has two kids that are hard of hearing they're teenagers now so she was giving me the whole backstory <laughs> and we were talking about teenage issues you know because that's where mm-hmm. they are now in their spiral of mm-hmm. of like testing accommodations and zoom virtual school and all that but one of the yeah. things she told me is that they went into one of these meetings when the school was like nah your kid is fine they they do so well and then her and her husband turned around and continued the meeting with their back to them <laughs> And everyone was like, uh, what are you doing? We can't hear you. And they're like, yeah, well, that's what our kid hears. <laughs> exactly. And I was like, wow, you are very gutsy, to, very bold. And they're like, they're, you yes, know, but they understand. Yeah, a whole team of professionals <laughs> telling me how my kid hears. Like, I was there yeah. the whole time and you were new here, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, and I think kind of uh, bouncing back to what kind of like where your point started with, Uh, making parents the leader of you know the team if you want to think of it as a team and like there's a lot to be said about making it shared decision making but I really think you have a good point where if we can empower parents with the knowledge where they understand the hearing loss they understand the impacts they understand how you know the context of things if you get if you empower them with the skills you know they know how to troubleshoot devices they know when things aren't right they know how to do a listening check they know the FM systems, you know, if they, if you can teach them those things, then like, those are the, those are honestly the best families to work with where it's like, I'm pretty much hands off. You know what I mean? You come to me and we check on things and we fix things up, but like mom and dad, they understand the process. They have really taken charge of everything. And then I think they are better models for their child also to be self-advocates, to be independent, to be their own, you know, leaders in terms of, understanding their technology and understanding what happens in school and how to make things better for themselves. So I think, yeah, empowering parents is such a great way to think of it rather than just, okay, we're all going to be on a team together. I'm going to tell you, and then this is going to be the process. Please come to your appointments. Instead of that, more like, all right, I'm going to give you the skills and the knowledge you need to kind of take the torch from me. Yes, that's huge. Yeah. And that really takes the burden off of us too. Like if we can help parents reach that point, then like we don't have to feel so responsible for every little thing. Absolutely. And again, like you said, it takes the burden off of the audiologist. It also takes away some of the heaviness and I think the guilt when you have a a, a family that's lost a follow-up or, you know, isn't having good outcomes. And it's like, what did I do? What could I have done? And, you know, there's there's different locus of control of what you control as an audiologist, yeah. what they control as a parent. And also, let's not forget, there's like 80,000 other factors of family situation 
and, you know, access to healthcare, like even the patients who I, I heard this on your podcast, your previous podcast, patients who are late and don't come to appointments yeah. or miss things. Well, do they have a car? You know, do they have access to transportation from where they are? Yeah. Things like that. That's so, so important to see people as this is a family doing this as best as they can. And we're here to help them. Uh, and if they do need extra help outside of that, then they deserve that. You know? Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. And it, it all comes, it's all part of, you know, empowering them is you can't, you can't deliver the knowledge and skills that they need if you're not, you know, putting it into the context of their lives and where they're at as people. And yeah, that's a really good point. I was just thinking that a good thought, maybe an anchor thought, this is like a concept, you know, you have one thought, you hold on to it. Um, that that you as an audiologist or, you know, any specialist, you're not trying to make this person an audiologist. <laughs> you're not trying to teach them everything you know. You're filtering out all the things you know into what are the things that this person needs in order for them to go on. And a lot of times I think we're, you know, we're nerds, we're technical, we love it. <laughs> we want to talk about yeah. all the little things. Yeah, like, that's a great point. Yeah. You know, don't, don't start now about how to change receivers and how to do this and that. Like if that's where you are, like, okay, you just need the battery. You need to know how to clean this. And then we'll talk about the next parts in the next appointment. Like, you know? Yeah. You, you are so right. Both myself and I think every person I work with has that problem where we are all trying to train a legion of audiologists <laughs> who are our patients. And yeah. that's just not realistic at all. And not what they need. Yeah. Not what they yeah, need. And they, yeah, they don't need that information. Most, like almost all the time, they never need to know as much as we're trying to tell them. That's a great point. Um, it's and more likely to turn them away. Um, could we, so we talked about like empowering the parents, but uh, going all the way back to first receiving, you know, first, when we first identify the child, we have, we have an ABR, however, it looks like if they're older and it's a behavioral test from your work, like working with families, what has, what do you see in terms of that emotional journey currently? I mean, it's, it's definitely going to be different for each parent and, and it's a lot of, it's going to depend on, I think you mentioned earlier, it depends on like what their background is. If they know anyone who's had, you know, uh, hearing loss or wears any kind of devices or anything like that. Could you talk a little bit to like how you see families processing this news, like what that emotional journey is like for them, like not just at the beginning, but like years down the line um, and what kind of support is already out there to help them through that? Yeah, it is individual, of course, but I think in, if we want to talk in general terms, there's a very strong sense of disbelief, especially with the young, the young, young ones. Like I wouldn't call it denial because it's not like they know it, but they don't want to believe it. It's that they don't believe you. <laughs> they, they haven't seen yeah. the evidence to support what it is you're saying. And, you know, back to what we said before that they do startle or they do, you know, different levels of hearing loss are going to be different. And even deaf babies who are profoundly deaf, like still connect. They still look mm -hmm. at you and move their and head. And Exactly. Right. This is like, I think there's even a, a misconception of what it means to be deaf and yeah. how that, what that looks like on a, on a baby or, or anybody. So it's just kind of like, I think when people hear about hearing loss or deafness, they have a perception in their head that this person is an isolated, disconnected, um, you know, 
person who's not going to have opportunities and is not going to have friends, that's the, I think, the, the translation, like what happens in their head with the word hearing loss or deaf. And when we say, hey, this child can't hear necessarily, or this is how much they can hear, and here's what we could do to help them. But also, even if we did nothing, <laughs> this child is going to go on and do lots of things. And, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. kind of struggling here because actually there are children who are also are deaf plus. So I don't want to say, oh, your child is healthy. Maybe not. You know, and that's that's sure. the biggest thing where where sometimes you say, oh, uh, it's just it's just well, what if it's not just what if it's a child who has a feeding tube and, you know, maybe had a, a traumatic birth or like other other things. We have to know the context of that also. And sometimes you're talking about hearing loss and they're like, we don't care. This child has a heart condition and we don't know if they're going to live through the year. So yeah. that's a different story with that family, you know? Yeah. So I, I'm even I'm even having a hard time articulating myself because I'm like having all these patients flooding in my, in my mind, honestly, <laughs> of how individual it is. Yeah, I've also, I've seen that multiple times with families too where, I mean, that's one of the things about hearing loss is in, in some families, it's like at first devastating and other families, it's joyous. You know, I've had deaf parents yeah. who yeah. are like overcome with joy when they find out their child is deaf. I've had families where in, in a similar situation where they have very severe life or death medical conditions and hearing loss is just the least of their concern. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it's just such a wide spectrum. I think that's a really good point. Um do you have any, I feel like you've got a lot of good stories. Do you have any parents that come to mind? I liked the parents that you mentioned at the, at the IEP meeting where they're like, like how you see this kind of, I don't even know if it's like grieving or just, just this like emotional processing, this emotional journey for them later on. Like when they've had a child with yeah. hearing loss for many years where you've seen that kind of come up. Well, I'll tell you, actually stay with this family cause they were so great. Um, I live here in Israel, and in Israel, um, army service is compulsory, and not only everyone serves, but everyone, it's also a, a national pride and something that is very scary for parents on one hand, but also, you know, something very strong culturally identity that, that you know, my son or daughter is in the army, and what are they serving, sure. and which unit, and everything. So when a, when a child is hearing impaired, uh, hard of hearing, deaf, whatever you want to say, <laughs> they, they, you know, kind of can't do certain things. They can't be in combat and, you know, they have different opportunities for what they could do in the army. Sure. And that to a lot of parents has a huge mixed bag of emotions that comes with it. Mm, yeah. There's relief there because kind of, you know, nobody really wants their child to go into combat, but also there's so much pride in that. So it's, yeah. it's kind of very hard to hold, to hold. And then to say, well, what can they do? And then some of them go on and do other amazing things in different units and intelligence or, you know, all sorts of things that they can, that they can serve. But that one, I think specifically in this culture is one I've heard from, from several parents. And I think for people around the world to know that there are deaf professors, there are deaf doctors and surgeons, there are deaf yeah. authors, there are deaf school teachers, and there deaf are football also players. Yes, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, the big one, the big story of the week is the uh, 
The Bachelor. Oh, The Bachelorette. Yeah. Yes, the woman that won The Bachelor. I don't know. One? I don't know. If that's, I don't know. I don't watch it. <laughs> she's she's doing she's doing great on the show. She's doing something. Okay. I don't know. I don't watch this thing. But it came up like 84 <laughs> times on my Instagram, you know. <laughs> Everybody's talking about her. And it's like, oh, look at this. Somebody who has a cochlear implant and who is a reality TV star. Yeah. Like there's the more representation, the more people can see. This is not something that we are now um in some like uh, tornado that's never gonna end it's like right yeah. now you don't know what's happening right now there's a lot on your head and you don't know what this means but you also mm-hmm. like this baby needs a diaper and a bottle right now <laughs> like coming back to today what do we need today today yeah. we need you to go and research here look look up these words these are the keywords i want you to research or here's the organization i want you to call and here's our next appointment this is the name of the surgeon on our staff, but we're going to get to that. You know, just to say, we've got you. Let's do this together. Uh, anyway, I went back. You were saying uh, about the grief and how it comes up later on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that was a great, like, that was great with the cultural context of families, you know, with with uh, military service. I think that's a great point of, like, how that can bubble up. Even though we are years behind, like, they are self, they, I mean, they are advocates for their child. They've been to all of the meetings. Like, mm-hmm. they could tell you how an audiogram works if they wanted to. Like, they've got it down. It's still going to bubble up in those moments where it's unexpected. Um you know, and then they're going to realize the beauty of the situation in another way that, oh, well, it's great because they get to have this opportunity instead, you know? So I, I think that was a really good point. You, um, I know that you're really involved. I can't remember the term for it. Like, would you call it like parent mentorship or like where you're kind of like working with families through their diagnosis? That's exactly right. I have a process okay. that I that I work with families alongside of their clinical team. Wherever they are in the world, it's via Zoom, so that works out. And they send me all their reports and all their uh, audiograms and anything that they're going through. And we have three big steps where in the first part, we really try to understand what does this diagnosis mean in a very practical way, implications on their child's functioning and development, what they can do, right? Like understanding what this means, not just what it is. And processing also it's it's a little bit of more in-depth counseling on what was it like that day tell talk to me about what happened what were your feelings about it and there's a there's a, a big overflow of feelings that they maybe held on to because they needed to go be practical and active we kind of make more space for that outside of that journey into you know this parallel thing that they're doing that's about yeah. them and about the parent cuz they are you know parents in general and i'm a mom i I have three kids we do everything for our kids from the morning to the night and in the middle of the night (laughs) 24 hours yeah yeah, you can't lose yourself and your own experiences and your relationship to yourself and your feelings and as a parent it's very easy to do that i think you know uh the early early parenting kind of experience of like oh my gosh i can't even go to the bathroom like i can't shower this child yeah, is everything yeah. and like that's true for for you know a couple weeks several weeks months but but you also have to say but i'm still a person <laughs> i'm still going mm-hmm. through this and if parents lose themselves in the process of only having one identity of parent and lose themselves um i think that's very dangerous for everybody it's not good for the kids yeah. it's not good for them so it's kind of a place where i say you matter too like you matter a lot 
<laughs> as a parent. And not only is it yeah. good that you're taking care of yourself, it's going to end up helping your kid. So we talk about the parents processing sometimes with one parent, sometimes both. Um, and other family members, I've, t- I've talked to my fair share of grandmas, as you say. Sure. Because grandmas have also this special kind of protection that they want to hold everything. Mm-hmm. And some of it is like, yeah. okay, let's talk about you and how this, what this brings up for you. Like yeah. someone's taking care of the kid. That's happening. Now it's your turn, you know? Sure. So that's the big first that's, step is understanding it. Yeah, that's that's so valuable. And I feel like you're right that that would oftentimes in a, in a more medical model where we're treating a problem and we are going to fix this problem and, you know, just completely that's kind of rejecting like a patient centered care approach. But even in patient centered care, if we're all about the child, if the fam, if the parent is doing the same thing, yeah, that's such a great point that they can just completely lose their own sense of self and identity. Um, Some of the, I was reading up a little bit on the literature about this, which I really don't think there were almost any studies on this topic of like parent, you know, emotional processing of a child with hearing loss until maybe I think the earliest thing I found was like 2003. Like it just wasn't explored at all. Um, And I think the conversation hasn't even quite reached what you're talking about. You know what I mean? It's more like, okay, in the moment, do you feel like uh, I, I think one study I read was was pretty interesting. It was saying they surveyed audiologists who deliver the news and parents who receive the news, and they kind of did like a priority list. And for audiologists, their priority of all the things, they had like the same list. But for the audiologists, the priority was making sure the parent understood the hearing loss. That was the number one priority. And the parent, their priority list was having like their feelings and emotions heard mm-hmm. and so the fact that these two have like this divide between them is definitely going to lead to some problems. But I think even going beyond that, sure, you're going to have an emotional reaction the first day, but it doesn't end there at all. And so kind of having that mentorship along the way, giving people opportunities to stop and breathe and reflect on things is so important. Um, so I, I'm curious. So that's like on Zoom. What's the typical uh, time span for that? Is it like, do you stay with them for a while? Is it kind of a one, check in once thing? Like, what's the model for that? So actually, it's uh, I, I present, you know, my, how I would prefer to do it. But then parents do what, what's good for them. Uh, sure. The way I, I structure it is that it's nine months. The first three months are more intense, meeting two to three times in the first three months per month. And then after that, it's more monthly because I do want there to be that first intense period where we're going to do a lot of this work. And then after that, to check in and and follow up with their process and how they're doing. So I've had a few people come with me there. I can accompany them and help them with that. And I think that they have much better experiences with their clinical team because they don't expect their team to do all of that. They've understood that there's this space. And I wish I wish more more people had the opportunity to do that. Like I've been in talks with different organizations to try and offer this as a service, um, because you know it's it's also an out of pocket additional kind of expense. Yeah. But but I think you know some people make the decision to get extra help at home with their with their kids, so they go to to therapy or they go to parenting classes. Like I feel like it's in that mm-hmm. kind of bucket. You know, yeah. what I mean? and the second thing that that I really talk to people through a lot, especially in that first three months, is about the shared decision making. 
of wherever, whatever decision they're up to. If it's about hearing aids or implantation, it's about language, modality, or their educational placement, or how to deal with family, like whatever decisions they're facing at that point, um, I really walk with them and, and help them see what the risks and benefits are from my perspective as an audiologist, but also yeah. what it means for their family. What does this mean? Like, do we talk about the stress that hearing loss has on a marriage? Do we talk about the stress that hearing loss has on people's finances? Do we talk about how it affects the siblings where one child gets attention and, you know, care and extra? Yeah. Uh, do they get more leniency or more strict? Like what goes on in the whole dynamics? So we talk about all of that stuff. And I, I feel like there's this holistic audiology side that um, is what I see was missing. So I, I stepped in, I hope. Yeah. <laughs> fill that gap. No, I, I I think that sounds amazing. I'm curious because like, like that needs to be someone's like whole role on the team, right? It's too hard to encapsulate all of those things into these very short windows and short appointments like that. I'm curious if you have like, we talked a little bit at the beginning, like how programs are training students right now when it comes to counseling and how, and maybe, maybe where they're not training students when it comes to this kind of counseling. How do you feel like, when we're training, you know, the next generation of audiologists to be better about these kinds of situations, what little things, I mean, obviously, you know, this, I think a system like the one that you have in place is ideal, but what are the little things you think that we can start training and start instilling into this new generation of audiologists to, to give them that compassion and, you know, improved care, especially for parents? Definitely. Number one is what you mentioned before. Stop explaining audiograms so in depth, like get to the point faster. <laughs> yeah. Don't be so technical and, and explain what this means as much as you can. And second, I think it's also very important to do those little things like close the door, you know, when, when you're having a diagnostic meeting and don't be interrupted, like don't answer pages or calls or whatever text mm. thing, like don't look at your computer. Yeah. Like this is an important conversation, even better move from your desk. Like if you have a different set up where you're not behind a desk, sit, you know, L <laughs> angled, like yeah, yeah. say, okay, we need to talk about this. There's like, going to be a lot of things I have to say, but I want to hear how this lands for you. And here's what the hearing loss is. And then be quiet. Okay. Stop talking. <laughs> Don't say what the next step is. Don't say, here's the plan. Like just be quiet and see what happens because the, some parents are going to be notebook parents is what I call them. And they're like, wow, this is happening. What do we need to do? A, B, C, writing down, scribbling, giving the names, giving the numbers. And that's their coping. They're, yeah, they're like real planners yeah. and movers. They got notebooks in their bag. And other parents will do the opposite. And they maybe will ask questions like, can you explain that again? How do you know that? And based on their question, you'll know what to do. Like, how could you know what the parent is going through if you don't be quiet yeah <laughs> saying that gently Honestly, that was that was the best piece of advice ever given to me by a supervisor during my yeah. fourth year um where i was that was that was the first time in my fourth year externship that was the first time i'd ever had the experience delivering the news of you know a new diagnosis of mm -hmm. hearing loss that was the first time i'd ever watched someone else do it right like yeah i had gone through three plus years of of graduate school and that was the first time i had encountered the situation and the biggest piece of advice she, she gave me was you like be quiet, be quiet way more than you think you need to. When there's an awkward pause in the conversation, let it sit, let it breathe, 
let them have a minute to process and let them be the first ones to respond because the conversation if if you do that they're going to be much more likely to guide the conversation in terms of questions that are going to be more important for them information they're going to be better able to process and that's going to stick whereas if you just okay there's an awkward pause okay so i'm going to start talking about this thing now you know you're just cramming more information into every nook and nook and cranny there so yeah i I think Mm -hmm. that advice of just be quiet let them speak or just let the silence exist. It's not a bad thing. It's not hurting anyone to let there be some silence in the conversation. That's really great. I don't think enough people are taught that. And especially when there are two parents or two people, you know, if it's mom and grandma or whoever, then that means there's two other things happening here. They're not having the same reaction. Each one is having their own thoughts and their own feelings. And sometimes, sometimes they'll talk to each other. And that's actually very powerful where one will say, what do you think about this? Did you expect this? Did you know this? And, and, or what do we do? And like, I think that's incredible because that shows that these two people feel that they are on a team about this already. And, and I really appreciate that dynamic. So then, I'll, then you can then respond with, it's really important that you two, you know, continue to this conversation and continue to talk about the options ahead and, and almost give like a gold star to them at that moment. Cause people, people are extremely overwhelmed. Like I won't be able to handle this. I don't know what to do about this. And you can say, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're going to know. And look, you have support or like, you know, mention that, that you're impressed that they yeah. have support that they can. I know with COVID people can only come in with one, you know, one mm. company and that like that's. And it's definitely changing. having an impact. Yeah. yeah. But back to what you said before about you sitting in that silence, it's your responsibility to regulate yourself that you're anxious about this news. Like you need your own deep breath. And your own check-in with your gut and your own, like, reminding yourself what your role is and what your role isn't. Yeah. You know, and it's not only about them and what you were supposed to do and, and like, very uh, go, go, go. Like, you also have that that opportunity for growth as your own professional and your own human <laughs> mm-hmm. to do that work. I think I think more people need to do that, <laughs> starting with myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's such a good point. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree that. And it kind of comes back to the very beginning. When we were talking about how we're currently approaching things with that panic and that yeah. like need for speed mentality to get it all out as fast as possible is that taking those breaths ourselves as much as we want to help the parents through this process, like we're going through a, like a process, too. And we also need to take that breath. And that's that's only going to help them at the end. That's only going to be for their benefit. Mm-hmm. And burnout is a thing. So we need to take care of ourselves. Yeah. Wow. So much good information. Is there, I know that you've got, you've got so many resources. Um, I know you have your website. Would you mind just kind of like plugging a few things, telling people where they can find some more information if they've got extra questions or if they want some resources, that kind of thing? Absolutely. Okay. So the very first thing is the all about audiology podcast. We've got over 58 episodes and 30,000 downloads, by the way. <laughs> Ooh, that number has jumped. Um, I knew it had jumped. Yep, yep, it's really exciting. We've got topics um, that we've been talking about today, but also lots of um, topics on tinnitus and balance and lots of parenting and co-regulating um, language development. So basically, go and look for your tags and you'll find a podcast episode about what you're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. Very interesting guests from around the world. It's quite an international audience, international guests. I, I'm, I'm loving that. So that's all yeah, about audiology. 
And over at, at allaboutaudiology.com, you can have some of my resources. My favorite is the five-step guide to navigating your child's hearing loss. And that is a PDF printable, or you can fill it out on the computer. It's got five questions to just kind of know where you are in the journey and help organize what's next. So that is a free download, allaboutaudiology.com slash guide. And there's also a Spanish version, which is slash G-U-I-A. I'm not going to try to say that. Okay, but it is there. So it's got an English version, a Spanish version, and there's a hearing aid checklist. There are all sorts of uh, podcast episodes and blog posts and things at allaboutaudiology.com. I hang out on Instagram. That's my favorite place to be. So come tell me you heard me on the podcast and we'll, we'll DM. That's my favorite thing to do. That's where that's where I first learned about your podcast was on Instagram. So I'm I'm grateful for Instagram for that. It's a beautiful community. It's very supportive, very lovely. You know, you yeah. kind of have to find your place on Instagram and then <laughs> find your people. It's good. Find your people, yeah. And awesome. uh, yeah, and if people are interested in in uh, my coaching services, my mentorship program, I'd love to um, speak to you and see if it's a good fit. If there's anything I could do to help. Yeah. I'm I'm so appreciative of the work you're doing. I know that you're, you know, really positively impacting a lot of families, and I know they're really grateful for that. And I think your insights are just really crucial for helping audiologists better approach these conversations that are they have lifelong impacts for families. So I, I think that's really important. And I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Um, it's been so good talking with you, hearing you, not just listening to your podcast, but you know, actually having a conversation with you is pretty awesome. Um, so thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Dakota. I really appreciate all the work you're doing as well. Thank you so much. Awesome. And that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening, subscribing, and rating. This podcast is part of an audio course offered for continuing education through Speech Therapy PD. Check out the website if you'd like to learn more about the CEU opportunities available for this episode, as well as archived episodes. Just head to speechtherapypd.com slash ear. That's speechtherapypd.com slash E-A-R.